Hello and welcome to the next episode of Planet Centred Care, a podcast about sustainable healthcare from the BMJ. My name is Florence Webmore, I'm a sustainability fellow at the BMJ and a medical registrar in London and I'm here with my co-host Lauren. Hi everyone, it's good to be back. I'm Lauren De Freitas, a freelance clinical editor in the education section of the BMJ and I'm based in Trinidad and Tobago. And we've got a kind of a very interesting discussion coming up today, focusing on on doing less and kind of low value care, which we'll get into a bit more um, in a second. Um, I think just kind of thinking back to, to when we were last together, Lauren. Um, I think one of the things that really that's really struck me and that I've been really thinking about since we recorded the last episode um, was something that one of our guests was talking about in terms of confidence and how kind of confidence plays into people's ability to to, to do things that they care about, I guess, and and um, and also to kind of to to start get started in action. And I think that will will kind of slightly play into to our discussion today around the role of confidence in in what healthcare professionals do. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that that idea of, of having confidence wasn't something that you know I thought about a lot, but yes, it, it does naturally play into everything that we do in, um, especially in our clinical practice. Um, but I think you know we do need, to, while we do need to have some level of confidence in order to push for change, um, it's also important to remember that. You, know, you don't have to be super confident and you can just you know take that first step and then build confidence from there um, but yeah I can definitely see it's it's going to have it's going to be an important part of what we're talking about today as well it really it made me think about the like one of the first things I did when I was kind of interested in this topic was I did a grand round at my hospital and I'd certainly forgotten this but I'd, I'd had the idea to do it and then it, it took me ages to do it until I found a colleague who I was having one of these conversations with and I was like, oh, well, why don't we do a grand round together? And that was, that really shifted for me. I was like, I was suddenly like, oh, okay, I've got something I can do it. And then once you've started, it, it kind of got the ball rolling. Polling numbers. <laughs> yeah. Should we talk a bit more about what we're talking about today? Yeah, so today's episode is going to focus on low value care, um, which is an area that I'm interested in because I think there are quite a few benefits to reducing low value care. And... It's really about us following the evidence, using our clinical judgment, and trying to do the right thing for the patient. Um, but in doing this, you do get the added benefit of it being good for the environment. Just, that's, I mean, it's super interesting that you make it all sound very easy, Lauren. Um, for our listeners, just explain to us a bit more about why this is sustainable healthcare. Yeah, so it might not be immediately obvious, but um, you know, everything that we do in our clinical practice, um, will contribute to the carbon footprint of your of your department or your health service, um, and a large bit of that will come from like things like medical equipment and pharmaceuticals. So, when we don't do a test that may not be really necessary for our patient, or you don't prescribe medication that they don't really need, um, that actually helps to reduce things like plastic waste. So we're not using as many blood bottles, as many consumables. You're not using as much energy from imaging because you're not doing unnecessary things and you're even reducing the patient travel because the patient has to come to the um, health service to do that particular test. So by not doing these things that are not really benefiting the patient, it's actually helping to reduce the carbon footprint of your health service as well. Thanks, that's definitely much clearer now. Before we get started, it'd be really nice to just um, to, to introduce our guest. Um, so, shall I start with Lucas? 
My name is Lucas Chartier. I'm an emergency physician consultant in Toronto, Canada. Uh, I've been doing um, work on resource stewardship and appropriateness for a number of years uh, under the auspices of quality improvement work that I've been doing. I've had a number of roles uh, from an emergency medicine leadership perspective. I was the chief of the Toronto General Emergency Department for a number of years. Now I'm in charge of the emergency departments for the city of Toronto, which is uh, the largest city in Canada for uh, some of your listeners who may not know. Um, and I now work as the Vice President for Quality and Safety for University Health Network, or UHN, which is the largest academic health centre in Canada. So thanks for having me and uh, looking forward to this conversation. Brilliant. Thank you so much for coming on. And Ben? Hello. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me to the podcast. My name is Ben Newell. I'm a Professor of Cognitive Psychology and Director of the Institute for Climate Risk and Response at the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Um, but I'm actually joining you today from, from Berlin, where I'm visiting some colleagues at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin. Uh, but my, my background is in, um, is in cognitive psychology, so thinking about how people think, how people make judgments, how people make decisions. Uh, and I've been particularly interested in how that plays out in various different applied contexts, um, some in the medical context, most recently this new role in the Institute in Environmental uh, considerations and climate change. So I'm trying to bring, a, I guess, a behavioural science lens to these kinds of um, questions. And I think there's, as you're saying, there's lots to be discussed here about how we communicate the benefits of, of low value care, both for, for person and planet. So I'm, I'm really keen to have this conversation. Thank you. And thank you so much, Ben, for taking your some time out on your um, your brief European tour, as you <laughs> might call it, <laughs> to come, come and join us. <laughs> All right, so let's um, let's get into the discussion today. Um, we're going to start with Lucas. So, can you tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got involved in in low value care and sustainability as well? Yeah, certainly. Um, at a very high level, I, I think I really came about from a um, sustainability in the very narrow definition of resource utilization. And I think that over time I've seen the uh, changes in our environment, in our society, but also uh, in my own, I guess, personal journey uh, and have realized how important it is from an environmental climate change perspective. And I think that has become a bigger driver, at least from a motivation and emotional perspective to the work, although the work may be very similar to the point, Lauren, that you made in your own introduction. Um, the reason I got into this kind of work was because I was seeing uh, the variability really of work in um, the colleagues and in the peers and in the system where I was working in, in a specific study that looked at uh, ECGs or electrocardiograms uh, for pre-operative patients in the province of Ontario, looking at about 100 different hospitals. And the likelihood of getting a pre-operative ECG for an elective surgery was not dependent on your own personal characteristics, where you have diabetes and hypertension and heart disease, 
Pharisees, but was uh, essentially driven only and primarily by where you were getting your surgery and who you saw as a provider. And so uh, there were some six-fold differences in the same province for the same patients for the same procedures in terms of who was getting an ECG and who wasn't. And to me, that just sounded wrong. I'm not saying that the top or the lowest are the right number. It's probably somewhere in the middle, um, and we'll never get uh, uh, we'll never get it equal across the province. But the reality is that if there's so much variability for something that should be similar, the problem is not driven by patients. The problem is driven by providers. This is on us. This is on the people who make the decisions, or at least drive the decisions, who need to change this. And so ever since then, really, I've been motivated to try to understand variability, try to bring down the uh, use of resources, especially low-value care. This is why I've been involved in Choosing Wisely, um, one of the initiatives that we may get back to that has really helped us, helped me, helped hopefully patients in society to decrease that use of resources uh, for you know the betterment of, of patient care and hopefully, uh, to your point, the betterment of the, uh, the environment over time. Wow, yeah. <laughs> Lucas, you raised a lot of uh, really good points that we're probably going to come back to, especially with the drivers of, of um, low-value care. Um, but before we get into that, um, let's go to Ben. Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and your career and how you got involved with climate change? Sure, yeah. So my, my original background, my PhD, my undergraduate training was in psychology and my PhD was in uh, experimental psychology. And, and you know, most of what we're doing in experimental psychology is trying to understand what are the drivers of the behaviours that we can observe in the world. And we, we, we try to design uh, nicely controlled studies and experiments to figure out, you know, how does attention work or how do people value risk or how do people's memories operate. Um, and those things are, you know, all contributing to our greater understanding of, of, of the human mind and human behaviour. Um, and I did a lot of work in that area um, early on. And then I started to get more involved in the field of judgment and decision making specifically. How can we improve people's judgments? How can we improve their decisions? And from that, I, I grew into thinking about the real application of that work, communicating the risks of different things. And I started to work with people in um, the financial sector. So thinking about how do you make decisions about your pension, for example, it's a, it's a tough issue it's a long term it actually has some similarities to climate change in the uncertainties and the intertemporal distances that are involved um, and then at one point I got interested in I was talking with climate scientists about their frustration about how they they could see what was happening and they could see what was coming and they just felt that the message wasn't getting across and they were saying well, you know you guys know about how people evaluate risks and how you make decisions and how you make judgments so surely you can help us and and from that I started to to get more interested in that intersection between communicating the uncertainties around climate and communicating uncertainty in general um, and from that that grew into a you know a more general interest in environment and in helping people's decisions and then more recently I've done that through work in what's become known as kind of behavioural insights or behavioural science applications to, to behaviour. And I've been involved in some of the government organisations in Australia that, that, that run trials, run experiments to see what are the kinds of different ways of presenting information that in this context, things like changing prescription of, of um, antibiotics or um, 
different types of medications and what do we know about the way the types of influences on people's decisions that will affect those kinds of behaviours. And so I've got more and more um, involved in that and now this new institute that I'm directing is, is very much focusing on that intersection of climate risk across all, all sectors of, the, of society really. Wow, super, super interesting. I mean, like, what I mean, what a varied career as well. But also, like, I think I mean, I'm really glad that we we have managed to to have you here with us because I think there's lots of what we're going to talk about is about how we think about those risks and 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 having that perspective is um well I'm interested to hear more. Yeah. So I think before. Yeah, before we get into the, some of the drivers and the, and the behavioral insights, we probably need to define low value care because, you know, maybe a lot of people, some people are not aware of this term, they're not familiar with it, they don't quite know what it means. So, um, Lucas, if you don't mind. Low value care is probably a misnomer, and, and I think that lower value care is probably a bit more appropriate. It muddies the water, it makes it a bit more challenging to define, but the reality is that when you are uh, as a provider in front of a patient, it's very difficult to conclusively say for that specific patient, this is high value, this is low value. Sometimes you can, and, and probably we need to push ourselves to do this more often, but the reality is that between the complexities of the interaction and of the, the patient specifics, the uncertainty, uh, both of the patient and of the test and their test characteristics, the reality is that it's a spectrum. And certainly there's, there's, a, there's a wide spectrum and we probably aren't putting the, the mark in the sand at the right um, place in terms of where we should start and stop ordering. But I would say that this is more of a spectrum or, or a gray area as opposed to a, a binary decision, low and high value care. And again, low value is something that is less likely, lower likelihood of a uh, deriving um, benefits to the patients, whether it is in giving you the information to help them move forward in an actionable and meaningful way, uh, or is going to have an effective uh, treatment um, effect on the patient. So that's what I would say in terms of uh, from a diagnostic or a therapeutic perspective, uh, where I would see the, the, the lower and higher value care being. Yeah, I, th- I think that's um, actually very useful because I think when we read about low value care, you know, you, you, we kind of present a black and white definition of, of what it is. Um, and, and it's really just not that simple in, in clinical practice. So it is good to think about it in the way that you've explained about lower value care um, and being in that moment with the patient. It it's, can be difficult to figure out, yes, is this high value? Is this low value? Yeah, I'm glad you've acknowledged the, the complexities there because <laughs> I think, yeah. Um, it's it's definitely not straightforward. And and Ben, I'd, I wonder if you've got any insights from from perhaps some of the you mentioned um, looking at antibiotic prescribing, which I guess is one example of a kind of low value care when when people are giving antibiotics in instances where they're not needed or required. Did you have any insights of kind of what what drives people to do this um, in clinical scenarios? Um, yeah, I think one of the key things that, that, that came out from some of the work that both the, to the behavioural economics team of the Australian government, the, the kind of um, behavioural insights team there, and some review work that I was involved in that looked at the, the drivers of, of, in particular, antibiotic, showed that things like um, social comparisons have, have an effect on whether or not you prescribe. So what I mean by that is... And it was interesting in Lucas's opening example of the variability across different jurisdictions. And it's not until you probably stop and, and look at that and study that, that you know 
within the jurisdiction you're in, how you compare to others. And so one of the simple kind of techniques that, that, that's been shown to have an impact on something like antibiotic prescription is just finding out where you sit in that distribution. So if, you, if you're told, you know, 90% of your colleagues prescribe less than you, um, that has an impact on the, the rate in, in the study that the, that the Australian government did. That had an impact then on subsequent prescription behaviour over the following several months. And so it's a simple you know, piece of information. They sent out letters to different, different uh, providers and, and gave them that information. And that kind of um, simple comparison with what my peers are doing, I mean, it's not only in this context that it, that it works. There's lots and lots of experiments showing how social effects, social norms, as it's called sometimes, allows you to assess your own performance relative to others and that, that can provide an impetus to, to change. It can also... You know, you have to be a bit careful because it can also have backfire type effects, right? So if you're if you're told that actually you're prescribing less than most people, and you don't really know what the correct answer is, then there's a there's a risk there that I that I you know bounce back and do more. This has been shown in you know talking more directly kind of environmental contexts like energy usage. And if you get the your energy bill and it tells you you're using a you know less electricity than a one person household compared to, you know, when you've got a household of five, then maybe it's time to, to ramp up the air conditioner. So, uh, which is a bad, you know, obviously a bad outcome. But yeah, so those, those kinds of things. Are, and the other thing I think is interesting in this context is that, you know, it's low value care in whose, whose eyes. So it's clearly that, you know, we're talking about it in terms of the, the, of the physician. Um, and that's arguably the, the correct context because they're probably in a better better position to assess the value of the care than the patient but but that always has to be part of the part of the discussion right how how, how is that being communicated you know if if it is a, if there is a care option there and you've decided not to give it to the to the patient and they really need to know what's the motivation behind that really uh, yeah i think that's super interesting i think it, it kind of links back a little bit to so we were talking um the other day about how a lot of healthcare almost is done by culture and habits and you know and I think you what what you're presenting is that you know if we can show that people in different places their habits are are different to others then that can drive behavior but also probably internally within you know the hospital or the surgery you work at you kind of pick up what the habits are of other people um you know and that's that's kind of already driving um driving people's behaviors Is there anything else that you've picked up on, Lucas, in, in, from the work you've been doing about kind of some of the other drivers of, of people to... We're still having this problem that we haven't quite defined what we mean by this, but, you know, care that, that we think is probably not helping the patient um, and probably not going to improve their outcomes. Um, you know, why do we still do this? Yeah, I mean, I think why goes back to communication and human relationships. It is difficult to deny people something that is available 
whether they need it, want it, think they need it, think they want it. Uh, I think a lot of it is culture to what you've been alluding to. And, and much like there is studies showing us that if you trained as, as a medical doctor, just to take one profession, uh, in a center that has high rates of complications for post-surgery, you are likely to bring this same level of harm to your patients in the new center where you are working as a consultant um, surgeon and so this uh, is probably translatable to all the different aspects of care and the reason why we continue to to do um, uh, lower value care is because we've done it this way we've trained this way we think the patients want it they don't always but we assume or ascribe preferences to them without even engaging into conversation with them assuming that because the last patient wanted it the next 10 patients will want it which may be very um, uh, very false uh, in certain jurisdiction and, and kind of is not immune to this there's a medical legal component to it it's going to be extremely unlikely for me as a provider to be sued uh, successfully because I provided a treatment that eventually ended up causing harm whether directly or indirectly but if I would hold that treatment much more likely uh, to be to be sued there's peer pressure uh, there's innovation or the belief that you know tests are there and they're good although we probably overestimate um, the test characteristics of what we do but you know for example as an example, uh, blood tests or, or CT scans are not perfect, and, and there, there's, a, there's an error rate uh, in a good way and in a bad way. And, and, and meanwhile, once we get X value or X report, we just assume it to be true, which isn't always the, the, the case. And the last one that I'll say, which is probably not as fun to discuss, is the income generation. There's still a lot of fee-for-service that is driven by the provision of care. And if I, I don't provide any care, I don't get any um, any income and you know people have mortgages to pay and, and rent to pay and, and, and bills to pay and so that's going to be a subconscious driver in, in many cases unfortunately. One of the things that's, that I'm not hearing what we haven't talked about and I'm just wondering how much of an impact this has um, is fear. So the fear of missing a diagnosis. Do you think that has a role to play or how big of a role do you have an idea of how big of a role that has to play in the decisions that we we make um ben why don't you <laughs> why don't you go first i mean i uh, yeah i don't want to speak on behalf of of uh doctors but i i i'm interested in the distinction between fear of uh of missing a diagnosis versus the issue that lucas alluded to in his last comment about fear of of litigation in certain contexts and which one of those is more of a driver because I, I, I'd be fascinated to know, maybe there is data out there on, on this that I'm not aware of, but I'd be fascinated to know um, how often tests are prescribed that a physician's is perfectly well calibrated in terms of the accuracy of these tests or the likelihood of them actually leading to some diagnosis, but we'll get them done anyway, just in case. You know, there's, there's literature on regret aversion and, you know, how bad we feel if we, if we missed something and that that can be a driver sometimes of, of uh, not wanting to risk in a simple, you know, risk-taking context. The, the regret theory is a prominent one in explaining risk-taking. Um, but I wonder if the, if it, which of those two things is more, is, is driving it, whether it's a genuine fear that I'm not going to get the diagnosis or whether it's a, it's a fear that, that I'll be, someone will come after me if I don't run this test and, and uh, 
I guess they're interrelated, but it seems like a different primary motivation to me. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I'm going to let Lucas um, jump in before I say anything as well. Um, and Lucas, just want, just thinking about the fact that you are an emergency physician and, and oftentimes it's life and death situations. So, yeah, do you think fear, how does fear come into to, to play in those kinds of, in that setting? Yeah, I mean, I'd love to think that my role is to save lives, but really it's to reassure and to exclude diagnoses um, most of the time. Um, and I do think that in these life or limb saving situations, the calculus is very different. Uh, and then I'm much more likely to over investigate because time is of the essence and obviously the consequences are much greater. Uh, it's for those patients who have subacute or chronic issues of lower uh, dangerousness, uh, I'm going to call it, um, where it becomes a little bit different. Um, the reality is that I, I think it's dependent on the provider to, to, to Ben's question and on the patient in the emergency department, especially over the course of the pandemic, at least where I work in a, in a downtown hospital, uh, we have always been the safety net of the uh, population, including those who are marginalized, those who are equity deserving, those who have substance uh, use disorder and mental health issues. Um, and this has only gotten worse over the course of the pandemic. To be quite honest, these patients don't have the resources and the means to be able to come and litigate against me in, in the hospital. And I'd love to think, I mean, that's my belief, and, and, and uh, I'd love to see my own data to see if that bears uh, truth, but I'd love to think that I don't provide any different care to these patients than I do to other patients who come in, you know, with their team of lawyers and say that they're going to they're gonna sue me if I don't do everything. Now, the conversation may be different and the level of health literacy is going to be different. But I, I, if anything, I probably over-investigate some of these individuals because I know that they have no other recourse and no other family doctor and they're probably, their lives are a little too chaotic to be able to follow up and to return in 48 hours to see if that infection is indeed getting worse and then needs antibiotics. And maybe I just need to take the opportunity that they've come tonight in their uh, you know, situation to say, you know what, I'm going to uh, organize some antibiotics and get our social worker to make sure that we can help you uh, pay for those or get access to, to programs to pay for them. And then that may be a bit of an overkill, but the, the underkill, uh, I'm, that those are probably bad choice of words <laughs> on my part, but I think you know what I'm trying to say, uh, are going to be much worse uh, in terms of their long-term prognosis. And so I think the fear plays into every single encounter. Um, I, 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 I wonder, and maybe Lauren, I'd love to hear your thoughts as well, but I, I wonder as an emergency provider whether my own, you know, uh, behavioral thinking is different than an internal medicine specialist or a neurosurgeon and, and the kind of work that they do and the consequences that they have. Uh, but I think it's, uh, I, I don't know that the fear is driving the test as much as it is uh, driving the overarching uh, um, I guess, care that I provide to all the patients all the time. I don't know that I'm answering the question. I think I'm skirting <laughs> around it, but I don't know that I have an easy answer, unfortunately. No, I think um, I think exactly how you express yourself is how I feel, um, because it is, it is complex and, and context-dependent. Um, it's really interesting, the example that you gave of, of patients coming from that different setting, um, because so in the emergency department where I work, it's, it's kind of similar. Litigation isn't... Um, 
as big of an issue in our setting as it is in other countries. Um, but access to care and after care can be a problem. So the same thing that you're describing, sometimes you just feel like, oh, you just need to do X, Y, and Z for the patient now because what if they don't get it done later on? Um, and so doing some of those blood tests that, you know, probably shouldn't be done in an emergency setting. It should be an outpatient setting, but you might see us doing it just because you're trying to help that patient as well. Um, but I think, you know, for some of us, fear does fear of missing that diagnosis um, can contribute. And just talking to some of my colleagues, it does contribute to some of the decisions that, um, that they make. Um, and you're lucky that Flo <laughs> works in internal medicine, so she can give that perspective as well. Yeah, I don't think I don't think I have any particular different perspective. I mean, it seems to be. I think it's probably one of those quite personal things. I guess you know it, we all have. I think I've had lots of discussions with colleagues about how you have kind of a different comfortableness with uncertainty and so on. Um, and I guess the other thing I was thinking about is that fear obviously drives a lot of overtesting and overtreatment. But then you wouldn't want to. A clinician who had no fear right because you know fear is obviously you know fear of doing harm I guess is, is to clarify that um because that you know you want people to be to be really um avoiding harm um but I just want to actually come back to something that, that Ben said about um that I found really fascinating about the idea of regret theory um and it really made me think of because I and I've I've had someone I work with who used to call it sometimes anecdotal medicine you know you have one thing that that goes majorly wrong um and i can think of like a couple of different you know one uh, given as an anecdote by someone i worked with about putting a catheter in wrong and you know somebody then getting a horrible infection and not surviving or actually i somebody i saw had a very rare um side effect from a medication once and you know it's relatively common medication and they were just very unlucky but it took me ages to feel comfortable prescribing that medication again you know there are other options I wasn't depriving people of care but every time I was like okay you know, it's fine you know that 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 side effect was so rare but is there anything we can do to help people to to not kind of fall foul of that when we when we know theoretically you know chances are that's not going to happen again yeah it's a great question and it, it, it's probably drawing the bow a little bit too far but initially what you tend to see is that people think oh well, that won't happen again won't have you know won't, lightning won't strike twice so i'll go back and choose that option again but then over time they think oh well it's going to build up again and i'm going to get another one of those bad outcomes so i'll switch back to the other one and so it's it's certainly the case that we have these perceptions of patterns in our environment dependencies between events that are very hard to to dispel because they you know there is dependency in a lot of events in in the world and so it's a useful um, heuristic if you like to to use but in terms of how you how you educate people and how you get that balance between missing that really really bad outcome if I don't take that you know the really rare diagnosis versus um, you know carrying on statistically I know how unlikely this thing is and I know what a waste of time it would be to, to, to run that particular test but you know there was still that time and so it, it yeah I, I think I can say and this is how you should do it but it is interesting to think about those you know whether whether simulating that experience in particular ways could help people to to get a better sense just in the same way as getting information about where you sit in a distribution of providers just getting more sense of what the distribution of these kind of outcomes are especially when you know you might be clouded by a very prominent recent example that, that could be useful 
Yeah, maybe there's something in just as well naming it as well, like kind of, you know, because once you've put a name to it and you say, well, I know that I maybe have a cloud of judgment because of this, you know, that, that even just acknowledging it, I guess, perhaps is helpful. Um, Lucas, I wonder if, it, just to move on, if you can give us a, an example of a time when you have managed to, with your kind of QI work, have managed to reduce um, what we think of as unnecessary tests, or well, what we're defining as unnecessary tests, um, and how you went about that. Yeah, so we uh, a number of years ago, we um, undertook a project in our emergency departments tackling um, CAT scans or computed tomography CT scans of the head for minor head injury. We know that the majority of patients who come to the emergency department after a minor head injury, and there are definitions to to <clears throat> to define what that truly means, uh, are unlikely to have intracranial bleeds, certainly those that would require neurosurgical intervention. Yet, for all the reasons that we mentioned before, patient expectations, what happened to, to the last time uh, their neighbor had a head injury and they got a CT scan, grandma who passed away away from a head injury, although the story is a bit nebulous and whether it was related is unclear for uh, medical legal. I mean, having a bleed in your brain is certainly not something that we wish upon anybody, fear of missing a diagnosis. Uh, we end up uh, having CT scans in our department at least um, in about 50%, 5-0% of the time. Now we do have a complex population of uh, transplant and cancer patients. Um, as I mentioned, downtown hospital with patients who come in with intoxication and from a variety of different sources and that makes the history challenging which means that the the physical examination investigations need to be a little bit different that being said it is likely to be higher than the required number and so what we did is we undertook a qi project with a number of pdsa cycles with an aim to reduce this the first uh, pdsa sorry stands for plan do study act many uh, of your listeners will be uh, will be familiar with this uh, and essentially small interventions, small cycles of change to try to, you know, slowly but surely uh, chew away at this problem. The four uh, interventions, I'm going by memory now that we had, uh, the first one was essentially just education to the providers about the magnitude of the issues um, and the numbers that we were doing. The second one was to facilitate the pathways in which uh, patients and providers could have a discussion and how to order the CT scans with some nudges using behavioral theory, as Ben has alluded to earlier, to try to really uh, push them into the direction of, of not doing a CT scan unless specific risk factors and red flags were uh, at play. The third one was a patient handout that we created for our patients to facilitate a conversation. We provided that handout to the patients after they were triaged, after they were placed into a room. So there's a little bit of a um, time spent in our department. They felt like they had invested some time into their care journey and we didn't want to scare them away into thinking they're never getting a CT scan and run away because that could have led to some harm. Um, but before the provider 
provider, the nurse practitioner, physician assistant, or physician would see them, or the trainee, we have a number of trainees, so that they could start thinking about uh, whether they truly needed that CT scan, given the risk and, and, and the delays uh, implicated. And finally, uh, again, to Ben's uh, original point, we provided data to our providers about the uh, likelihood that they were uh, ordering CT scans versus the rest of our department. And so through all of those four interventions, education, um, uh, patient pamphlets, um, the nudges, as well as the data, we saw some consistent decrease over time to the tune of about 16%. Again, it's not remarkable, but it is over time. Uh, it made a big difference into the length of stay of those patients, the resource utilization, obviously the radiation risk in the, in the downstream effects that we won't be able to calculate at a societal perspective. Um, and, and we did lead to some meaningful changes over time. But again, it was a lot of work. Uh, it was a lot of effort uh, for one test, for one condition. Uh, and in the grand scheme of things, you know, are we, are we inputting so many, um, uh, so many uh, resources into something that's going to have limited uh, output potentially, but at least this is something that we felt pretty comfortable and pretty happy with the results um, with the projects that we did in our department. I mean, it's like it's an interesting project. It shows a kind of tangible, you know, where that it's like, oh, this is a specific place we can we can start to make a difference. And um, and did you at that point did you think about the environmental impact, or you know, have you since kind of started to look at, at those? that aspect of it. Yeah, I, I will be very uh, frank. That was a number of years ago, five, six years ago. I don't think that the environment featured prominently in that specific project. I think the societal impact in terms of uh, resource utilization, um, the, the time spent in our department and the productivity loss of, of all of you know those hours uh, from the, the providers, from the patients and, and their family members was more featured a little bit more prominently. Since then, as I mentioned earlier, I think I've shifted personally in my own life a little bit more towards environment. And so I think that if I were to redo that project, I probably would use it as a burning platform a little bit more, whether it is going to make you know the electricity and the, the wear and tear the machine use, whether it's going to make a huge dent in the environment Probably not, but the reality is that nothing I'm ever going to do beyond my own personal decisions within my local environment are going to make a big difference. And so I need to start somewhere, and this may be the place to start to try to have an impact on myself, on my colleagues, and on my system. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just want to pick up on something that both of you said early on and then related to your, your QI projects, Lucas, um, is the role of the patient. So, Lucas, you've said that it's not the patient, it's generally not the patient that's driving low-value care. It comes from the provider. And Ben, you had raised the point that we need to think about the, the patient's perspective. Um, so, yeah, so what do we think about the role of the patients? Um, if they're not the ones driving it and it is the, the provider, um, do we still try to educate our patients on why we do the things that we do? I mean, it, it's tricky, right? Because even if the provider is not uh, is not directly offering, as Lucas was saying, the, the the patient may come with expectations driven by other experiences that they've heard about from their neighbours, from their relations, from, and so even if if it's not an option that's being, you know, provided up, up front, they might say, well, so and so had one of these things. Can't I go and get you know? Can't I go and get one of these things? And to then be able to communicate that as um, no, it's not worth it, you know. And, and when you start bringing the environmental perspective into it, when you start to talk about 
you know, the, the environmental impact of, of running a test and whether that becomes part of the conversation with the patient. It's going to be a difficult conversation if, if what the patient is, and this is, I'm not saying this is what's happening, but if the patient is hearing, you don't want to run this test because it's bad for the environment, even though it, it might, you know, in a very, very small part of the probability space might be useful for me. Um, you know, where do I, where, how do you communicate that trade-off to me? Now, if, there's, if there are clear alternatives, so I'm thinking of um, different ways of providing gases in anaesthesia or for, you know, puffers for asthma, and that there are, there are choices that can be made there about the, the emissions impact of the gases that are used that are not likely to be having direct impacts on the patient. This sort of anecdotal evidence, but talking to a consultant anaesthetist from Sydney not that long ago who was saying that, you know, they're moving very much towards different mixes of gases that have lower impact. And that's not really a discussion that, you, that you're going to have with the patient. It may be a discussion that you're going to have with the rest of the medical team, but not with the, not with the patient. So there are situations like that, but I can imagine other ones where, you know, it does become part of the, the information that the person is trying to, to weigh up, to trade off. And, and that, that becomes a, a, a problem that I do, do think needs more careful thought. Yeah, Lucas, do you want to weigh in on the, the patient's rule? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, the, the anecdotal accumulation of experience that sometimes will affect our judgment, and when you have one really hard conversation with a, the mother of a young child who really believes that they require antibiotic for this ear infection that is most likely viral, but the reality is that the daycare will not let little Tommy go back to the daycare until he's on antibiotics for 24 hours. And mommy needs to go back to work because, again, she has bills to pay. It's really hard to have these conversations with these patients and to convince them that the societal impact and the environmental impact and the medical uh, um, likelihood uh, is is to be beneficial when there's very other uh, other drivers and it only takes you a couple of conversations like this to then not want to emotionally get invested day in and day out into these conversations again and to just decide that every little kid is going to get antibiotic because it's easier and faster for me and I can see more patients which is good again for the whole department or for my clinic or for my wait times and again I'm not I'm not saying that this is the right um, that the right uh, decision. I'm probably a zealot in our department with you know having these conversations and slowing down to a grind uh, some of my encounters as a result. Uh, and sometimes I, I do have an impact. And sometimes after five minutes of discussion, I recognize that this is a losing battle, and 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 I'm, I'm I need to make the difficult decision. Am I going to get a um, complaint by this patient who believes that I'm declining their care, which is going to trigger so many um, hours of work and emotional energy for me, or do I just sign the prescription and move on to the next patient? And so again, I'm not saying that I'm doing the right thing all the time. I do try to do it more often than not, but there's so many drivers to these expectations, again, which accumulate over time on the aggregate and may or may not be true on the individual patient. I think that's, that's actually really interesting, and it, it's just demonstrating the complexity of this issue. Um, you know, hearing these, these are the real-life experiences um, that you have, would have had with patients that we may not necessarily think about, um, and looking at that bigger picture, and, you know, I didn't even think about that, like, you know, the child won't be able to go back to daycare because they're not going to accept him, and all of that, and these are, it's, but it's real, it's real factors that, that have a role to play in, in the decisions that we make ultimately. 
Yeah, I mean, I I think this. Is, I mean, this is fascinating. Um. I would say that sometimes though we we also go the other way. I think sometimes we assume that patients want more, you know, because we're not having these conversations and we're not having them well, and we're not. I was speaking to somebody else who who's a professor of appropriate care, um, in the run up to this, and and he was saying that there's some kind of they did some study where they like graded people on how good they actually are at shared decision making, and you could get a score of one to a hundred. I don't know how they did this, but most people were scoring about nineteen. So although we think we're good at shared decision making often we're not as much as as uh, as we are um and you know i think yeah i think that sometimes actually when when we give the space to have the honest conversations people sometimes don't want the care that, that we're offering them but but you know there's other factors so i think it, it can go both ways and and i don't know we could talk all day about how we how we could get better at that <laughs> well thank you both for joining us and bringing all your insights in what's been a really fascinating discussion Oh, well, Lauren, um, what did you think? What are your what are your thoughts after that discussion? Yeah, um, definitely insightful, um, but it also reminded me of the complexity of the issue. Um, it isn't black and white as much as we want it to be. Um, there are a lot of different factors, and I think you know, Lucas really drove it home when you when you really have to think about that bigger picture. Um, looking, at, it's not just about that that clinical. Um, interaction that that specific diagnosis oh okay don't give antibiotics it's not going to do anything but you do have to look at the bigger impact um, for the patient that you're you're managing so and and you know yeah it is important that, that we do think about that and think about the patient's perspective um, <clears throat> I think but also that it is context dependent I do think that why we do the things that we do and what drives us to maybe do a test that isn't 100% necessary is probably going to be context dependent. Um, what I do in Trinidad when my own <laughs> department might differ from another department right here in Trinidad, as Lucas said, is variability that exists. Um, and so, yeah, I guess we have to look at our own practices and um, figure out what, what's driving our own decisions before we come up with the solutions that maybe there isn't a one size fits all solution to this. Yeah, totally. I mean, so obviously just to bring this back, like, you know, we know that if you're doing a test or you're doing a procedure or, you know, much bigger, if you're doing an operation that doesn't need to be happening, that's unsustainable because, you know, it's bad for your patient. It's and as well as having a financial cost and a carbon cost. Um, and as someone who, who struggles with this in my clinical practice, I, de- I definitely you know I, I sort of mentioned I feel like there's a spectrum and of like how much people are, are comfortable taking risk and I definitely think I fall on the kind of less comfortable with risk side even though I know about these sustainability benefits and all of this stuff and, and the you know the everything else that goes with it um so perhaps maybe I came into this a bit over optimistic that that somebody was going <laughs> to give me some answers as to how to help myself <laughs> move somewhere along that spectrum um but I think what we've touched on is is that that's complex, and and there will be times when you can kind of create a guideline or, or you know look at something and say, actually, look, you know, if somebody falls in these defined characteristics, you're fine to not, you know, as kind of the CT example that that Lucas talked about, you know, if your patient has this and this, and that's what the whole choosing wisely campaign is about isn't it it's like you know if your patient meets this criteria we've had a look at the evidence and there is no point in doing xyz um but what you do when it's 
3am and you've got a complex patient and you're deciding whether or not to do this that or you know that's always going to be more difficult and um and you know there probably isn't an easy answer and and but I think we yeah I'd be really interested to come back to it again I think we you know we could talk about this a lot longer you know because there is something in the way we're educated and the habits and so on that that perhaps do change that you know to to make make it a bit easier um and and I think we could probably talk more again about that shared decision making of um you know I'm I'm interested in geriatrics and and looking after older people in frailty and that's where this comes in loads I think that, that um you know probably lots of lots of people you know the kind of idea of the last thousand days of your life I don't know if you've come across that but you know thinking that if you have a thousand days left to live like how how would you want to spend them and you probably wouldn't want to spend them in hospital (laughs) having tests yeah so we need to, to to perhaps change the like the conversations that we have but um and I think it's probably important to say as well that ultimately in our decision making it should always be whatever's clinically appropriate that's that's still number one that's going to outweigh um the environmental aspects of things um it's just that we hope that whatever we decide does align with the environmental benefits of it yeah absolutely no but yeah it's both ways it's like not saying that we're going to not do something just because it's of the environmental benefit when we think it could be a benefit of patient obviously nobody goes into healthcare to do that but it's trying to work out where are those instances um yeah and so I'm yeah so we've had some insights perhaps maybe not some answers but but a conversation and and maybe hopefully um starting a conversation with some you know for some of our listeners yeah I, I think that's that's the aim here not necessarily answers but yeah just starting the conversation starting to think about about the the issue at hand All right. So thanks again to everyone, to all our guests for joining us today. This was um, a fantastic, really insightful conversation. Um, I think we have lots to think about and take away from from this episode. And thanks to all of you for listening to another episode of Planet Centered Care, the BMJ's podcast on sustainable healthcare. Look out for future episodes and don't forget to check out our climate related content on the BMJ's website including education articles that help to support clinicians practicing sustainable healthcare. We also have the NHS Net Zero Clinical Care Conference coming up in October, and there is a virtual option, so please check out the website. Um, You can still register for the online attendance. Um, And thanks again to everyone for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next time.